If you turn your Bibles uh, to Samuel, 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 19, this is page 242, if you just grab the Pew Bible, if you'd rather use that, or if you brought your phone, whatever, but if you just grab the Pew Bible there, it's page 242. This is the last sermon in Kings, part 2. Next week we'll be diving into the the, uh, refocus series, as I've already mentioned. This is a great sort of place to stop. This is the place where we find David in the place of being driven out. We've seen him rise over Saul, who is the first king of Israel. Uh, David has been anointed as a little child. He grew up a little bit to sort of a mid-teenage year, and he slew Goliath. And then last week we saw him, you know, bind up friendship with Jonathan and become uh, really a military hero, a military leader in Israel. And so chapter 18, verse 30, so the last verse of chapter 18 from last week said that the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the other servants of Saul. So every time they went to battle, David was in the midst of it, and he did better than any. I mean, he is Jet Lee in the midst of these battles. And everyone is talking about how awesome David is. So his name is highly esteemed. We saw last week that this caused some uh, uh, trouble in Saul's mind, because Saul remembers the word of Samuel that says, I'm going to tear God, is going to tear the kingdom from you. And so, so, so Saul is on the lookout for the person who's going to do it. And, and, and these fits of emotion that we saw him go through last week, as he saw David rise to prominence, are only exacerbated as uh, David continues to have such great success Success, And so for these, four, these two chapters that we're going to be going through, there are four stories, and each one of them kind of leads us through how David is finally driven out and becomes kind of a wanderer, uh, a bandit almost, in the land. The first story uh, is in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Look at the first verse there. Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, and to all his servants. So it's not just him having this sort of quiet moment with his son, like this is really him plotting, like this is what I want to do. But he's got his, his counsel together. Like his, his men are all in the room, and he says, this is what we're going to do. We are going to kill David. Now, this is different than what we saw before. Before, we saw him ha- have some minor machinations, some, some, uh, some uh, emotional outbursts. But this is intentional plotting with a large group of people. He has got his closest commanders, generals, all of his yes-men, and his son in the midst. And he says, listen, this is what we're up to. We're going to kill David. Now, you remember with uh, David and Jonathan last week, what did I say this was in the Bible? Bromance, Right. This is your first Bible bromance between David and Jonathan. They are close, close friends. And so is Jonathan just going to turn on David on a dime? No, he goes and he warns David. But neither is Jonathan a traitor. Neither is he going to turn on his father. He's caught in this difficult tension between his close friendship with David and his love and duty to both his father and his king. (coughs) Excuse me. And so what is he going to do? He goes the next morning after he warns David... And he goes to his father and he says, uh, will you, in verse 5, he says, are you going to sin against innocent blood? Are you going to kill David? He's done nothing 
wrong to you? How dare you do this? Even if you, even if you are afraid of him, even if you do think he'll supplant you, he hasn't done anything worthy of this, this execution, and so you, you can't just go and do what you want. All of the people, including the king, remember, are all under the law of God. They're all under Torah. No one is above the law of God, and to, it's a crime to go against innocent blood, Jonathan says. And Saul listens to him. Notice there in verse 6. Saul listens to the voice of Jonathan, and he swore. He said, as the Lord lives, which is kind of a way of saying, um, uh, you know, uh, a way of saying, I promise, or I swear, or uh, something like that. He says, as the Lord lives, he, that is David, shall not be put to death. Now, this is a big deal. We, 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 we sort of swear all the time, you know, we, we, well, I didn't quite mean it like that, but we say things like, I promise, all the time. We take oaths all the time, and we don't really think hard about those words being a binding factor to us. But they are, in fact, especially in the scriptures, continue to point out that words have meaning, words have power. Words mean something. So if you say, I'm going to do something, and you don't do it, it is, it's sin. And so especially as he has elevated this, he hasn't just said, I'm not going to kill David. He has said, as the Lord lives, he's invoked the name of the Lord. And so to break this now especially is to really break the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments. Especially that taking the name of the Lord in vain. But guess what happens? More battles ensue. The Philistines come out again. And, and, and David goes into the midst of it. And who is he again? Jet Li. I watched a Jet Li movie this week, and so I'm thinking of Jet Li. Jet Li, be with me, guys. Jet Li. So he is Jet Li in the midst of this, and he is, and he is just, he decimates everyone, and he comes back. And of course, if you're the military here, if you're the one that did all of the great work, then they're throwing the parades for you, they're throwing the confetti, they're making the cakes, they're very excited. And this, of course, pleases Saul greatly, right? No. No, Saul is angry. He's furious. He deals such a great blow, it says in verse 8, David, against the Philistines that they run fleeing. And then in verse 9, a harmful spirit comes upon the Lord, uh, from the Lord upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. Now just stop there for a second. What did I just say? What did I just say? He sat in his house with... Did we hear a story like this before? And this is for those of you who were here last week. And then what's David doing? He's playing the, the harp or the lyre, the guitar. He's got the electric. He's got the distortion pedal going. Right, Brandon? Haven't we heard this before? And what does Saul do? Saul is enraged. Because not only is this guy Jet Li in battle, but he's, I don't know, famous guitarist, somebody. Jimi Hendrix, thank you. And he's Jimi Hendrix on the guitar. And so Saul picks the spear up and he throws it at him to pin him against the wall again. And David, uh, uh, using his spidey powers, dodges out of the way and, 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 gets, and gets away and flees. This is the first story that we see of David being driven out from Saul's uh, presence. I find it hard to feel bad for David, though. Because listen, if, I, if any of you ever throw one spear at me, just one. While I'm playing guitar, which would be understandable were I playing guitar in your presence. 
I'm not going to wait for the second, let alone the third. I'm just going to set the guitar down and walk away. And yet here we see David a second time, right? Saul's upset. Well, let me play for him. What? No, he's got a spear in his hand. No worries. Won't happen again. You know, it just, it's a funny story. It's a funny story here. And so David flees into the night. But I do see something deeper here going on with Saul. And that is that Saul is really driven by his passions, isn't he? He's a double-minded man. He is a man who on one moment has received a fierce rebuke from Jonathan. Jonathan says, Jonathan says listen, let, you know what is right and you know what is wrong. And before God, you need to do what is right and not what is wrong. And Saul says, I will do what is right. But then things don't go so well for Saul. He gets a little upset. He gets angry. The spirit comes upon him. He has this moment where, again, now, oh, now, I, want to, now, now I want to kill David. There's this back and forth, this, this war, this division inside of Saul himself between what is good and between what is evil. And he allows his emotions and his desires to sort of govern those choices. David says in Psalm 119, 113, this passage that he writes later on in, in the Psalms. He says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Do you notice the difference between the two and how they're drawn together? I hate the double-minded, that is, those who love God in one moment and then act against him, which is to hate God. Do you ever think about that? If to love God is to follow God, to deny God is to what? We often in life, and because it's easier, and because we're all really flawed people, right? All flawed people, we're willing to admit that here. Is this okay? Safe place? You can all say that. It, we're all really flawed people. And so we really want that middle ground to say, well, you know, it's not so bad. Uh, but the scriptures continually call us to recognize that no, even the smallest is that bad. That to love God and to love his law and to pursue God and to pursue his law is tied up with the love of God. And to do anything less than that is to hate God. This is why Jesus is such an important person in our lives, right? Because there are moments in each of our lives, perhaps even in each, in our, each of our days, where we need to lean upon the grace of God because we have hated God with our actions. And while that word is really hard, we need to hold to both the truth of it so we live up to our calling and to the grace of it to recognize that we can't do it on our own. Do you see the tension? Do you see it together? Do you see it? And this is what Saul is lacking. He's got the double-mindedness. He hasn't set himself upon loving God and loving his law. James says something very similar. In James chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, it says, and this you might be familiar with, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And this is kind of, again, what we're talking about here, how important it is to have a singleness of thought. Have I decided to follow God or have I not? So here is three things that I think of when I think of ways in which we can draw forward consistency. Because if we see something in Saul, it is this kind of being driven by the wind here and there. And if we see something in David and in Jonathan as well, we see consistency in those two characteristics that we've brought up again and again that we as men and women of God want. Valor and faith. Valor and faith. 
And if we want that kind of valor and faith, then it will necessitate that we draw forward in consistent living, not being driven here and there. And here I draw upon James some very simple things. Submit to God. And this is a set of mind. You know, have, we, we say this word repentance. We use it all the time. Like Jesus uses it. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And oftentimes we take that to mean something akin to, I'm sorry for all the little bad things that I do, and I probably won't do them again today. Right? But repentance is, ha- is much more than that. It is a shift of focus and mindset. It is the kind of mindset that pushes me forward that says, okay, I have decided now to follow Jesus, no turning back. And so when a temptation comes, because temptation's gonna come, temptation comes from the right, and we might stop and think about that temptation. Do I wanna do it? Well, maybe not today. I feel kind of holy today. Maybe I'll wait till tomorrow. Well, no. You know, we, we go this back and forth on this temptation. We've stopped, just like Saul, to consider the sin. And what consistency and submission to God means, we no longer consider the sin. We don't consider it. We've set our minds upon Jesus, and now there is no option. There is no option to turn right. There is no option to turn left. There is no option to give in to this temptation. There is no option to give in to this sin, because I have submitted everything to God. And that is a mindset that we need to continually drive home. And one of the best ways that we can do that is, guess what? The Bible, again, is drawing near to God. Because if you draw near to God, the scripture says God draws near to you. And the closer you are to holiness, the easier it is to recognize unholiness and the easier it is to despise unholiness because you see the terrible damage that it does to our lives. And there are various ways in which we can draw near to God. You, you probably know these answers already. If they're very Sunday school, But they're very true. Read your scriptures. Be in worship. Pray with one another. Meet together with other Christians regularly. Sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Make these practices a part of it. The last one is not scriptural. This is Jordan and all. Jordan and all. Um, Set low bar goals and keep them. And so... One of the things that I've noticed about my life, it's very habit-driven. Anybody else notice that? Very habit-driven. And the little habits that I have usually feed in uh, to the larger habits that I have. And so I have a habit of, of running at the gym. And let me tell you, there is nothing worse in this world than running except for maybe the flu. Aside from the flu, the only thing worse than that is running. I hate it. 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 I get on that treadmill and I say to myself, you're going to run a mile because I know that at 0.2 miles in, I want to be done. That's actually a little bit of a lie. It was actually 0.1 miles in, I was ready to be done. But I get on that treadmill and I say to myself, no, you are going this mile. You're going this mile. You can do this mile. I know you can. You're just going to do it. You've set the goal and you're going to keep it. Set the goal and you're going to keep it. Now, I know in the grand scheme of the other two things that we talked about, that sounds really trite and meaningless. And it is in the sense that it, it, it isn't big in the, in the grand scheme of things, but it creates 
a kind of character that I desperately want to be in my life. I want to be a person who says that they will do something and do it. I want to be a person of consistency who has submitted himself totally to God and is drawing near to God regularly. And I want to do that not just in the big parts of my life, in the small parts of my life. And I know that if I can set a low bar goal, then it's possible I can set some high bar goals too. And that the more of these low bar goals I set, the more of these high bar goals I can set, and the better I might be at drawing near to God, the better I might be at living a life that's worthy of the honor of being called a Christian. So anyway, that's my advice, such as it is. The second story is in uh, chapter 19, verses 11 through 17. So remember with me, just a second ago, David has been driven out by the spear, literally, uh, from the presence of Saul. And Saul was his king. This was his place. This was his station in life. He belonged to this. It's being like fired from your, dro- your job and told, don't come back again. And this is everything that you know how to do. This is everything you are. This is, your, this is where you make your money. You've been driven from it. And where do you go? Well, you go home, right? And that's what David does. He goes home to his wife, Michal. And if you remember, that is Saul's youngest daughter. He gave her in marriage to him last week because we read that she loved him. And so they are married, and he comes home. And Michal knows her, her father well, and she says, if you stay here, you won't live long. Because Saul has sent his men, and they're lying in wait outside of David's home. Now, if you remember, too, back then, there's no street lamps, there's no lights. I mean, this is, this is it. the only way to, to have a light is to light a torch or a lamp or something like that and give your position away. And so this is very smart. They're waiting outside the house. They're waiting for daybreak when hopefully David will be asleep, but also they'll be able to see and go in and kill him. And McCall says, you got to go. And so in verse 12, so in verse 12, McCall lets David down through the window and he flees away. He runs and he escapes. And then she takes an image. We're not really sure what this word means. It might be some kind of small deity, small idol or something like that. It might be a statue. Who knows? But whatever it is, it is people-shaped. And she sticks it in the bed along with a pillow of goat's hair. And I can't think of anything worse than sleeping on goat's hair. Isn't that sound? I read that. It sounds nasty to me. I don't know. Does anybody have a goat's hair pillow? Does, it sound, does that sound nasty to you too? It sounds nasty to me. Ugh. Goats are ugly beasts, anyway. They're, and they're coarse. Ugh. Maybe it's baby goats. Maybe they're soft. I don't know. Anyway, okay, so anyway, uh, the pillow of goats here, and she covers it with the clothes. Now, I'm sure all of you were good teenagers, and none of you have ever done anything like putting the pillows like they do in the TV show, putting the pillows and pulling the blankets up. But apparently, this is quite literally the oldest trick in the book, because this is exactly what she pulls on him. So she's covered up these, these, these pillows, and... And, and the morning comes, indeed, the morning comes, and, and, uh, and, and Saul's men come rushing into the door, and they're like, we want to see David, and Saul is with them. And she says, well, he's, he's ill. You really don't want to go in there. And Saul says, he's about to be sick to death. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. I knew somebody, because that's what I thought, and I thought it was funny. Thank you. And so he goes in there, and of course they pull the blankets back, and, and, and David is not there. And then something interesting happens. She says to him, uh, or Saul says to her, why did you lie to me? Why did you lie to me? Well, because you wanted to kill my husband. That's a legitimate answer, right? All of you wives out there, legitimate answer. She doesn't say that, though. She says, because he threatened to kill me, which of course is going to get Saul 
on David's side, isn't it? Right? I mean, she's like adding fuel to this fire. And I think it is, I think it is um, unintentional, but I think she's definitely doing it because of, yeah, you know, I don't know. There's just bad news. You don't want to kill somebody's daughter. All right, the third story. Uh, chapter 19, verses 18 through 24. Now here, so Saul has driven David from his job, his place of, like his place of calling, his place of where his friends are, where, where his, his comrades are, where, where everything is. And he's driven him to his own home, where his family is, where his wife is, where his bed is, where his home. And now Saul has driven him from his home. Where is David going to go now? Where's he gonna go? What's left once you've been driven from your place of calling, your place of work, and then driven from your own home and your own family? Where do you go next? What's interesting is that um, David goes and pursues the Lord. You notice here, this is where we are-ish. This is where Israel is. And so zooming in at the time, this is the time of the kingdom of Saul. And so this is where they are, about here, um, down in Gibeah. And then up here, David goes north to Ramah because Samuel is in Ramah. And Samuel, you remember, is the high priest. He's the prophet of God. He's in touch with God. And not just him alone, but all there's gathered around Samuel in this place, what we call the company of the, what the Bible calls the company of the prophets. It might be something like, like Bible college. You think you, everybody goes there and they're, they're praying and they're worshiping and they're studying about God all the time. And this is just kind of, they're consumed with thoughts of God. And so what does David do? He's been driven from his work. He's been driven from his home. And he goes to the last place that he has left, or maybe the first place he should have gone in the first place, he's driven to God. And there he gathers with Samuel, um, and he lives with Samuel there for some time. We don't really know what the time stretch is, but it is some time anyway. And around this company of prophets, we know that together they're often worshiping, even as we are here today, this morning. And, and as they're worshiping, the Spirit of the Lord will fall upon them, and they would all begin to prophesy. Now, we think of the word prophecy or prophesy maybe in a more modern lens. And for that, you might think of like foretelling the future, like this is going to happen to you later on today. The Bible doesn't have that same idea of prophecy. It has a much larger view. Prophecy is simply a word from God. And so it might be something that explains the past. It might be something telling you about today. And it might be something indeed about the future, what will happen tomorrow. But that's sort of the, the, the catchword prophecy. And so together they are prophesying as they're together um, worshiping. And, and Saul has heard that David is there with Samuel. And so he sends his messengers. He doesn't send his army. He doesn't send his soldiers. And, and that's because he still respects Samuel. Because there is still some fear of God there. He's still got that vacillating between what is good and what is wrong and what is, what is, what is godly and what is not going on in him. And so the messengers from Saul, they come in and they, they get caught up in the worship service. They begin to prophesy. Well, the Spirit of God falls upon them and they begin to prophesy and become a part of this service. Well, the word gets back to Saul that his messengers have been caught up. And so he sends more messengers and These messengers as well, the spirit falls upon them and they're caught up in this as well. And there's this worship that's going on, this prophesying that's going on and the messengers of Saul are never coming back. And so Saul eventually says, I guess if you want something done right, you've got to 
Do it yourself. And so Saul goes and he does it himself. He goes to see what has transpired there in Ramah. And he gets in there and they're worshiping or they're prophesying. There's, there's, there's a service going on. They're together. And Samuel is sort of standing over them. There's a very strong, even though he's very elderly, presence. And the Spirit of God falls even upon Saul. And Saul begins to prophesy as well. What's interesting about this story is that as you go home and as you read this text, because um, I'm just kind of telling it, but if, as you go home and you read these verses over the week, you'll notice that David sort of vanishes in this story. He doesn't really appear again until we get to the next story where he runs back to visit Jonathan. Uh, but you might ask the question, well, what happened in this story? Like suddenly... David, who is the main character of all of these bits, is gone. You might think, well, maybe Samuel is the main character. Maybe Saul is the main character. No, the Spirit of God is the main character. The Spirit of God falls upon these people, and they are driven to their knees. They're driven to his presence. They're driven to this this ecstatic worship experience. They're driven uh, to recognize his power and his supremacy, his sovereignty. And there is this moment where I think we're told to stop in this series of stories because it's just bad news for David all the way through, isn't it? I mean, driven from his, his, his life and driven um, into this presence there, and then all of a sudden we're reminded of the power of God. Might be something for us to consider in our own lives. Maybe you've lost a job or been driven from a job. Maybe you've lost a home, or maybe you've lost children. Maybe you've lost something that is very akin to all of that, and you just feel like you've been driven and driven and driven and driven away. Maybe it's time to find your way back to God so that he can become the main character of the story again. Because once he's the main character of the story again, amazing things can happen. And even the Sauls of your life who are throwing spears, even though they're not very good aims, they're still throwing spears, even the Sauls of your life can be brought to their knees and God can do something wonderful for in and through you. The last story takes up all of chapter 20. So again, we're going through a lot of Bible material here and I really do encourage you and and exhort you to go home and to read these texts in their fullness because I'm just touching on them here. Um, What we have in chapter 20, verse 1, is that David flees then from Naoth in Ramah, and he came and said before Jonathan, and so again, remember, uh, we've got them up here kind of across from Michmash here, and he goes back down south, so it's sort of written in a way to seem that Saul is still caught up in that, that, that prophecy group there in and Ramah, and David comes down to Gibeah, and there he, he speaks to Jonathan, and he asks Jonathan the very important question of, what in the world, dude, right? What did I do wrong? He says, literally, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? What have I done to deserve him to hunt me down and to drive me Away, And Jonathan is surprised by this. He says to David, listen, my dad trusts me. He, he, does, he doesn't do things without telling me. If his plan was to kill you, then he would tell me about it. Of course, Jonathan has in mind the oath that his father took back in chapter 19, verse 6, where, where, where he said, before God, right, that oath that is binding, before God, I am not going to kill him. And so Jonathan says, you've got to be mistaken. And David says, listen, dude, we're three spears in. I'm not mistaken. 
One spear, maybe. These things happen. Two spears, okay, maybe. But three is just right out. Like, this is for sure. And so they come up with a plan, a plot. How are we going to know for sure whether Saul wants to kill David or not? And Jonathan knows that there's a new moon festival that's about to begin, and they're about to all feast together. And David's place is in Saul's home, in his house. And so when the feast comes and the table is set, it's like Thanksgiving. Like if, if, if Uncle Billy doesn't show up, everybody's going to wonder, where's Uncle Billy? Uncle Billy, I don't know. I couldn't think of any of my uncles, like, in that moment. <laughs> Uncle Gary will show up and will say, Who is it? where is he at? You know, we expect him to be here. And then if Saul gets angry, then we'll know that something's amiss. But if Saul's okay, then, then you know, then they'll be fine. So, so they have this whole situation where the, the feast is laid out. And they're going to have this feast. And Saul is sitting at the head of the table. And Jonathan's in his place. All other people are in their place. But David's seat is empty. And, da- and Saul asks uh, Jonathan, where's, where's David? Where, where's David at? Uh, and he says, I sent, I, David begged me to go and, and to go and, and sacrifice with his family because this is something they do every year. And I said, yeah, go ahead. Go and sacrifice with your family. Now, there's no reason that should upset you, right? I mean, you guys, have, all of you have been married. You got to trade off on the, on the holidays. We know how it is, right? And so, uh, you know, so that's what Jonathan says. And Saul gets enraged, which tells us there is something wrong. Verse 30 of chapter 20, 20 verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? I don't know why he has to bring mom into this and like just insult her like that. As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Do you see how true that statement is? Saul isn't wrong here. He's not wrong here at all. Saul recognizes that this is a real threat. He says, basically, listen, if, if David stays, your kingdom is not secure because at any point he can take it from you. So Saul is thinking about what? his own progeny, his own future, his own desires, his own will, and he is not thinking about God's will for Israel. Even though it's a very hard word, he's not thinking of God's word, will for Israel. Um, Therefore, send and bring him, verse 31, and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Saul, Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. Seriously, why do we keep giving this guy spears? At some point, just... Anyway. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So I think several things sort of emerge from this story. The first is, of course, stop giving Saul spears. Um, and if somebody ever tells you, hey, listen, I went over to this guy's house and he threw three spears at me, and you go to that house and that guy has a spear, just leave. Believe your friends. Trust your friends when it comes to spears. Uh, the, the second thing is that there's a sense of true friendship between uh, uh, David and Jonathan and David seems to, or Jonathan in all of these places seems to put 
David first. Do you notice why he was angry? Why was he angry? Was it because his dad just threw a spear at him to try to kill him? No. He was angry because David was disgraced. He was concerned about his friend. He was concerned about the other. I think this is a larger word of import to us as Christians, as people who believe in God, because this seems to be consistent with what we see throughout of Scripture, that true godliness is other-directed. True godliness is thinking about the other person. True godliness is the pursuit of God and the pursuit of others and their betterment. And that's what's happening here with Jonathan. Jonathan is outraged, not because his dad just tried to kill him, but because his dad has disgraced his friend. And he's done so with false accusations, which I think is a second piece of that, that true Christian, true belief in God is going to lead to a sense of justice, deep justice, and recognizing when we see iniquity and we see injustice, we're enraged by it. We're upset by it. We're troubled by it. And it isn't then just the best friendness or the otherness that we might might say that that is so important, but just a sense of desire for justice for for all people. And that, I think, is is some of the things that uh, are happening here in this story. And so what we see in these stories um, is David... Uh, We've seen him grow up. We've seen him uh, become famous. We've seen him grow in influence. We've seen him grow in virtue. We didn't know what David was going to be like when he was anointed as king as a a little one uh, back in the very first story we had of him. But what have we seen him do? We have seen him grow into the action that God said he would have. God said he will be a man after my own heart. He will share my will. He'll share my desires. He'll be like me in that what he want or what I want, he will want too. And that is what we've seen with David all the way through. David is constantly giving Saul the benefit of the doubt. David is constantly honoring Jonathan. David is constantly seeking to do the will of God. He is full of valor. He is full of faith. He is full of consistent living. And this makes him a person worthy of note, whom God is going to use powerfully as we read in the coming chapters. But I want you to notice what God does to bring him to the next level. Because at this point we could say, well, man, you should make David the king now, right? I mean, what more could he do to prove how good he is and how worthy he is to be king? And yet God isn't done with him yet. He has driven him in the stories we read today from a safe place. He's driven him from his calling. He's driven him from his home. He's driven him into the arms of God and even at this point now, driven him out into the wilderness because God has a plan for David and that plan is going to lead him through the valley of the shadow of death. And one of the things that we have to realize is that if God is going to make something mighty of you, If he's going to refine you and make you pure as gold, he is going to put you through the fires as well. He's going to put you through the fires. And if you're going through the fire today, I want to invite you to come forward. We'll have our elders down front here. They would love to pray with you. So this isn't just like if you need Jesus for the first time. This isn't just if you've never accepted Jesus it, it, this isn't just a church membership stuff, but this is, if you need prayer, we want to invite you to come forward so that we can struggle with you. Because as we'll see the story progress, David doesn't struggle alone. There is always more people together. And so if there is a need for you, 
We want to invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song. Please stand.